thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the Word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It continues to be a great pleasure to share the Word of God here at Durban Memorial Baptist Church. When I think back to high school, one of the highlights of my, uh, that era there for me was playing high school football. And I want it to be known that I was not a stellar athlete, believe it or not. <laughs> I'm not especially strong. I'm not extremely fast. I don't really enjoy being tackled by people. People running towards me while I'm trying to throw the ball really stresses me out. All those realities make it pretty hard to play football. But somehow, despite all of my very glaring weaknesses, I just love playing football. So to compensate for my weaknesses, I studied. I read the playbook over and over and over, all the way through, back and forth. Knew every position on every play, what every person was supposed to be doing. The coaches eventually took notice, and by the time I was a senior, I actually got a start at Bryan Station High School here in Lexington. It was awesome. One day while we were at practice, though, we were running through our plays, and I was out at wide receiver. I don't remember the particulars of how it went down, but I just know it was clear I didn't go where I was supposed to go. I was supposed to be over there, but I ran over here, right? And so my coach was a stickler for excellence. And so he blows the whistle and he approaches me. And as he's walking over to me, I know I messed up big time. My coach just laid into me. But he said something that has stuck with me ever since. I may have shared this before. I'm not sure. But he said to me, Pierce, I don't know if you're the dumbest smart kid I know or the smartest dumb kid I know, but you better figure it out. I found out later he got that from a movie, but at the time, I thought it was the most embarrassing and profound thing that had ever been said to me. I'm still trying to figure out if I'm a smart, dumb kid or a dumb, smart kid. When it came to my football career, I at times had a hard time translating what I knew in my head into what I actually did on the field. In some ways, that same struggle can be found in the Christian life. We know the things that we're supposed to do, but we struggle to live it out. We recently have walked through Colossians, and in chapter 3, there's a, 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 a list of all the things that we're supposed to do. It just goes on and on. It's really great stuff. Also, at our church, we have a, a membership covenant that we have, and it's filled with these promises we make, these things that we know we're supposed to do that are based in Scripture that show how we live out our faith in Christ. Our members' covenant includes things like walking together in Christian love and striving for the advancement of this church and the Christian graces of peace, forgiveness, hope, and love. We also say we promise to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship ordinances, doctrine, and disciplines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to support the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. And that's just the first of three paragraphs of promises that we make in our membership covenant. And these are things that we promise in good faith to do as members of a local church, of this local church. All those are based on scripture and should be desired to be employed in the life really of any believer. But here's the problem. 
We don't always do the things we know we're supposed to do. We know the route we should be running, but we find ourselves going a different direction. We're supposed to be here, but we end up there. The redeemed Christian understands the call to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, but feels the pull of the flesh taking them elsewhere. It can be very difficult at times, maybe at all times, to pursue righteousness for the glory of God. And if anyone is self-righteous enough to tell you that being obediently and following the Lord is easy, then I would suggest to that person that they need to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Coming to and following the Lord is simple, but it is not easy. Even the Apostle Paul, after coming to faith in the glorious encounter on the road to Damascus, he wrote this in Romans chapter 7. He says, for I delight in the law of the Lord, a law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's saying, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. Paul would answer this question with an emphatic Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve my so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Who will deliver us from the body of death? Jesus Christ. He will. In the mind, Paul knows and serves the law of God. Paul has experienced the grace of God to cover his sin. But does that mean that he keeps on sinning, that he goes on in sin? By no means. It means whenever Paul sins, he still has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. His salvation is secure even in sin. I've said all of this thus far to lay a foundation for what we're going to get into here in just a minute. If you know the Lord, if you know God, I'm going to be blunt. You are called to righteous living. You are called to live in response of the grace you have received. And you probably have some idea of what that looks like. Maybe it's through reading God's word, through reviewing the member's covenant. You look and have an idea of these actions that we are supposed to do that honor God, but you struggle putting them into practice. That's probably true for all of us. I know it's true for me. But if that's you, and I truly believe it is all of us, all those saved by grace through faith, then you should recognize God has graced us with his wisdom to guide us in bridging from knowledge of a rule to living it out. With that in mind, open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1 if you haven't already. We're going to begin today in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to walk through this book for a few weeks, and then periodically later on we'll return to it in little modules down the road. But this book of wisdom is a great grace of God to guide us in practically living out the truths of Scripture. 
This book uses imagery and metaphor to stimulate our minds and to show us the value of God's wisdom. Today, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses, which serves kind of as a three-part introduction for the rest of the book. Begin with me in verse 1. We'll just park there for a little bit. Uh, Proverbs 1.1 says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So the first part of this introduction, this three-part introduction we're going to look at today, is the title. It's simply the title. Now, it might seem like a rather elementary statement here without much going on, but this verse here sets a framework for everything else that's going to follow in the rest of this book. In this simple verse, we learn two important facts for how to read the Proverbs. We learn the author and we learn the mode of communication. The book of Proverbs is a fascinating text. It receives attention from both believers and from uh, secularists. The wisdom contained in the book of Proverbs is practical. It seems uh, accessible to many. There are some who assert that the wisdom contained therein has value that is general enough for all people, regardless of faith. When When you're reading through all the Bible, you will see uh, uh, callbacks to earlier events. And so like if you're reading through the whole Old Testament, you'll see uh, the author make mention of what's called the Exodus account when they took, uh, uh, um, when God took the Israelites out of Egypt. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, which we're, we're going to be there in a few weeks from now, uh, uh, God spoke to Samuel and said uh, 400 years after the Exodus, he said, I brought him up out of Egypt. So in 1 Samuel, you see all these callbacks calling back to the Exodus. It also happens in the New Testament when uh, right before everybody's favorite verse in John three sixteen, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's these references all throughout Scripture that call back to the beginning uh, of of the, the story, the unified story from Genesis to Revelation. We're seeing a true story of salvation for the glory of God. But here in Proverbs, we don't see much of that. There's not all these callbacks throughout Proverbs that tie it in to the rest of scripture. So that's an argument saying that we don't need the it stands on its own. It doesn't need to be in the rest of scripture. Add to that there's parallels in some of the later chapters of Proverbs that uh, parallel what's called the instruction of Imaminope. I probably didn't pronounce that right, but it was a book of Proverbs, a, a book of instruction from Egypt. And many people believe that this book, this book of Proverbs is self-standing and accessible. They want to keep the baby and throw out the bathwater of the Bible, so to speak. And that's their argument. They say it's not tied into everything else and it, it uses other uh, sources in it. We'll see as we get into the end of our text this morning why this is not possible. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. But our first clue to this being an improper approach to Proverbs comes by acknowledging the author there at the end of verse 1. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. This is a contextual clue for the reader that all of the writings contained in this book flow from those who know the one true God of Israel. You can't divorce the rest of the book from Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. 
All of this flows back to understanding the one true God. This book asserts right in the beginning that it is being produced in the flow of biblical history. There might not be all these callbacks to Exodus all throughout the rest of the book, but we see it right here in the beginning. This is tied in to the rest of Scripture. The wisdom contained in Proverbs is wisdom that flows through Solomon. It's the Proverbs of Solomon, but ultimately that wisdom comes from God. This is really cool. In 1 Kings, we're shown when Solomon comes to be a king, God's going to bless him. And so Solomon asked God for wisdom. And this is what God says back to uh, Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. He says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for wisdom. And God said to him, because you have asked for this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or life uh, or, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I will now do according to your word. Behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you you uh, and none like you shall arise after you. What does this mean? This is big. God gave this wisdom to Solomon and now that wisdom is given to us in Proverbs. What, why is that a big deal? It's God's wisdom. How did Solomon get it? He didn't just come up with its own. It's given from God. This is the wisdom from God. He gave to one man to be shared with the many. We also see back in Proverbs 1.1 uh, that the wisdom is given to us through Proverbs. What is a proverb? What is a proverb? Well, it's been defined by some as a practical truth that's easy to remember. So these are the Proverbs of Solomon. Those are seen as uh, a practical truths that are easy to remember. It might be things like variety is the spice of life. You've heard that before. Maybe practice makes perfect or a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Some people say those are Proverbs. Those are American Proverbs. But those may be common Proverbs. But biblical Proverbs give more than just common sense. A biblical proverb, these images that we're going to see as we walk through the rest of this book are little models of reality. It gives a picture of aspects of our everyday life. And through a study of Proverbs, we're given a model to see how God designed this world. We can study the design and then know how to act when we go out in this world that he designed. One pastor noted that the world says live and learn, but through the Proverbs, God is saying learn and live. We're seeing how he designed the world and thus how to be wise out in the world that he designed. In just this short little verse, the title of the book, we learn that it is connected to the rest of the canon of Scripture and the mode through which this wisdom is given. So now let's look at the goals of this book. This is the goals of the book shown to us in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. So the goal of this book So that the reader would know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight and receive instruction and wise dealing and righteousness and justice and equity to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying the word of the wise and their riddles. There are two primary goals that we get from this section of scripture. These are the goals the author has for the reader of the book. He wants the reader to both know 
and to understand. He wants the reader to know and to understand. Both of those come to us in verse 2 and then are expounded upon in the next four verses. To know and to understand. So the first goal is for the reader to know. Well, to know what? Well, we see to know wisdom and instruction there in verse 2. I've said this word wisdom quite a bit already this morning, but I've yet to define what wisdom really is. To be honest, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to give a concrete definition to wisdom, but I'll give it a go anyways. That's never stopped the pastor before, right? Wisdom is, it's more than knowing the right answer. It's more than understanding morality in a situation. If you were to pull up the word uh, in the Hebrew, which I won't even try to pronounce it for us this morning, but the word that we render wisdom in Hebrew is used elsewhere in Scripture. And the same word there describes a deep connection to skill. The same word describes the craftsmanship used to create the priestly garments and the artistry used to create the tabernacle. So from that understanding, we understand wisdom is applied skill and competence that understands how life really works. Now, this should excite us. We should be fired up right now. We've already seen that the wisdom in this book comes to us from God, and now we see that the goal is for the reader to know wisdom. This should excite us because God is gracing us to grow in our understanding, our mastery, and our skill through a grasp on how the world really works. The ultimate author of the book is the one who created the world. What better source of wisdom could there be? Let me illustrate this with a, this is kind of a rabbit, but we'll bring it back here. I recently have been diving into the, uh, to the, to the study of church revitalization. I want to see our church grow for the glory of God. I want to see us being faithful in what we are called to do. And so I'm not interested in some pragmatic uh, amusement park type growth for the sake of growth. But I want to lead our church in a healthy direction that is a beacon of God's goodness to those around us. I want us to be faithful in the calling the Lord has given us. And so uh, the term I'm using in my search here is strategic faithfulness. I want us to be strategically faithful in what we do. So I say all that to say I've been reading through all of these books. They're starting to read through all of these different books on church revitalization, wanting to glean whatever I can. And I was sharing this with a pastor friend of mine. And he was looking through the books and he was like, you're going to get a whole lot more out of this one than you are out of that one. I was like... Why? He said, well, the guy who wrote this book, he's been a pastor before. He's been in the church before. He's seen it. Those guys over there, they're just seminary professors who've never actually been in the church. They haven't actually been pastors. They don't know what church life and leadership looks like. The first book would have a whole lot more practical wisdom because it was written by a guy who had been through it. When it comes to the Proverbs, to tie this back where we're at, it is an extremely valuable source of wisdom because it was written and inspired by the extreme source of wisdom. It doesn't get any closer to the source than something breathed out by God. This is really cool. It should excite us. But unfortunately, many people don't seek God's wisdom through his word. Why not? Well, 
because of the other thing that Paul, or I'm sorry, Solomon intends his readers to know from this book. He doesn't just say to know wisdom. He says knows wisdom and instruction. In other English translations, the word there is discipline. Godly wisdom is gained through discipline and instruction. We obtain the Lord's wisdom through trial, through difficulty, through adversity. In obtaining the wisdom of God, we are going to be brought low. In the fallen state of humanity, y'all, if we're being honest, we don't like that. We don't want to be brought low. We don't want to be told we're wrong. We don't want to be corrected. We view being humbled as being humiliated. But the truth is, we need to be brought to the end of ourselves to see the goodness of God. If you were to boil down the morality of most children's movies, which that's another thing I've been studying a lot lately, but for other reasons, you would find in almost every movie, the moral, the, the, the crux of the movie is telling the, the child, the, the main character, the truth was in you all along. You had it there in you all along. They go on the journey, they fight the big bad or whatever it is, and what they needed for success was hidden deep down inside themselves and their inner being all along. Well, I am sorry, but that is false worldly wisdom. The truth of the matter is you don't have what you need deep down inside yourself. Deep down, though it's obscured through the foggy glass of sinful pride, we all know there's something bigger and better than us. When we truly look, look deep down inside ourselves, what we find is that our hearts are full of deception. We deny it time and time again, but we're in need of the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. If we want wisdom, we have to be able to receive instruction like that which is described in verse 3. Naturally, we're not inclined towards wise dealings and righteousness and justice and equity. We don't handle our interactions with others properly on our own without the Lord's instruction. We don't know what righteousness even is without the instruction of the Lord. Justice in this life will just be a pale glimpse of the perfect justice of the Lord. We can't correctly do this without his instruction. Equity here is referring to evenness. That's the opposite of uh, uh, partiality. In our sinful flesh, we're prone not to view things evenly. We give preferential treatment to one thing for superficial reasons over another. To understand any of these things written out there in verse 3, it requires heavenly instruction. As we grow in our knowledge of the Lord through the study of his word and living in response to the grace we have received, we receive his instruction and his discipline. As wise students, we receive the instruction of the Lord in regards to those dealings, righteousness, justice, and equity. And you know you've learned something when you're able to then turn around and teach it. That's what we get into there in verse 4. Those who grow in godly wisdom turn and give three other things to others. They give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Prudence, knowledge and discretion. Prudence may seem to have a negative connotation in our culture. I don't know anybody who likes to be called a prude. 
But this word here is wise. There's wisdom in prudence, especially in the context of giving it to the simple. That word here is describing the simple. It's describing someone who is deficient, who is lacking in godly wisdom and simply going about life in a blissful ignorance. They don't know what they don't know. They may be susceptible to influence or they're weak-willed, they're irresponsible, they're still correctable. But here's what I know. That was me. That was me. And I thank God for the wiser people that he placed around me to give me accountability and guidance. The prudence mentioned in verse 4 is talking about giving discretion, helping the naive make wise decisions, not based upon the changing winds of culture, but planted firmly in the will of God. This goes hand in hand with what's being given to the youth. It says there in verse four as well, knowledge and discretion. We are to take our God-given growth and wisdom and to share what we have learned with the next generation. I mentioned our members covenant earlier. Did you know that if you are a member of this church, you have promised to biblically educate our children. Now, you could read that very narrowly and you could say, well, I don't have any children or all my kids have grown out of the house, so I'm out of jail free on that one, right? But when we view that in the light here of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4, we should all be educating the next generation and sharing godly wisdom with them. If the goal is growth, and then when we grow, we're enabled to give prudence and simple, to give knowledge and discretion to the youth. That's something we should be wanting to get in on. I can tell you this. If they aren't going to be taught the truth of Scripture at home or here by us here at the church, there are plenty of forces out there seeking to fill their minds with unending amoral garbage, and they'll be glad that we subjugated our duties. We should be inspired to teach. We grow in wisdom by the grace of God and we pass it on to others by the grace of God. Then verse five shows us that we never stop growing. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who basically already understands May they obtain guidance. We have a tendency to get stagnant when we're older. I understand there's physical limitations that can hinder what we're able to do. But we should never think ourselves so learned that we move beyond the need of the counsel from the word of God. Stay humble. Keep learning. Verse 6 then is a call for those who long in the faith to continue to Ponder on the teaching. To dwell there. You've been around the faith for a long time. Well, stay there. Understand a proverb. Dive into those rich riddles in the word of the wise. There's always more to know about God. More room to grow in wisdom and in knowledge. So the goal of this book is for that the reader will know and understand. Will digest and dwell upon these things and come to an understanding of the things of God. In the first verse of the, our study this morning, and sorry, in the final verse of our study this morning, 
we'll see the key, the key to truly understanding anything that is contained in this book. Read verse seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the key. It's the theme really for the entire book of Proverbs. But if you want to go beyond that, it's really the key of all of life. True knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord love his wisdom and his instruction. They accept his instruction. The fool, however, despises them both. I want to model transparency from the pulpit, so I'll make another confession this morning. When I was in seminary, I didn't like studying Hebrew. I really didn't like it. I just didn't get it. It's written backwards. Uh, There's letters. There, there, There are no letters. It's dashes and dots. And then there's not even a single vowel. On top of that, I was trying to learn it on an online program. Like, whoa, it was a struggle, and I was struggling. But despite the struggle with that language, there is one bright spot that stood out for me in my studies. One word, which is honestly probably the only Hebrew word I know by heart. Yeah, yira, yara, however you want to pronounce it. Yira is the Hebrew word that in English we translate as fear. It's the emotion of being so awe-inspired and filled with reverence, we're left speechless. It's being so overwhelmed by glory that we are at the end of ourselves as described in the emotion of fear. It's the shudder down your spine, seeing something so beyond yourself that you can't comprehend it. I heard a radio commercial this week from the Arizona Tourism Board, and the commercial said something to the effect of, just wait till you try our prickly pear chocolates and come and taste our amazing food. And it went on and on through all these different things that you can do in Arizona. But then it reached the end and it said, and the first time that you step in front of the Grand Canyon and see it for yourself, it'll take your breath away. I've never been to Arizona never seen the Grand Canyon myself, but I can imagine that there's truth to that statement that you stand there in front of it and it's just breathtaking. There are wonderful things in this world that elicit a response from us, a response of awe when we see them, staring out into the depths of the ocean, looking out from the crest of a mountain, Watching from the front of the room as your soon-to-be wife walks down the aisle, witnessing the birth of your first child. All incredible sights that bring reverential awe and fear in us, if we're being honest about the emotions that we feel in those times. And it's in those moments that are so beautiful and so beyond our control that our attention should then be drawn towards the sovereign God in charge of it all. When we get a glimpse of the God who is working all of those things together for his eternal purpose, if we truly understand the bigness of God, it'll bring us to our knees in reverential, awestruck, overflowing, love-inducing fear. Fear of him. Having real knowledge in this world begins with respecting, revering, 
fearing the Lord. True knowledge in this world is understanding I am weak, but thou art strong. True wisdom is humbly, cheerfully, and reverentially submitting to God, knowing he's got this whole world in his hands. If you deny the one true God, you can't be wise. If you're too proud to accept instruction from the Lord, you are nothing but a fool. Same goes for the wisdom of God. If you deny those things, fool. What's the most vital lesson that all of Scripture teaches us? That we are dead in our sin, stuck on our own. But God loved us so much, even while we were still sinners, that He sent Christ to die for us, to pay for our sins. Everyone who receives Jesus as Lord will be saved. And in the cosmic transference of his grace, through faith, those who believe in the Lord fear the Lord. Not because they think he will harm them, but because they see his holiness and are left with nothing but to bow before him. That is the start of wisdom. Coming to the end of yourself, bowing before the Lord in reverence and in holy fear. If you would want to understand more about that today, I'd ask that you come and speak to me more about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. I thank you for gracing us with it. For the source of all wisdom, the one who is above all things, in all things, and through all things, distilling for us a glimpse of how you've designed your word to, your world to work through your word. We can see your goodness in your word. Lord, I pray that we would approach this study of the book of Proverbs reverentially, fearfully, in awe of you. Lord, I pray that we would approach life fearfully, reverentially in awe of you. That everything we do is in response to the grace that we have received, that we would seek to be zealous for good works and seek to know how to do that through the study of your word. Lord, give us your wisdom, the wisdom only you can provide, the wisdom this world doesn't have but tries to pass off like it does. May we find it in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.